there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope everyone's enjoying the holidays. If you haven't checked it out yet, I encourage you to listen to my new podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. Six episodes are out. There is one more main episode dropping January 5th. Today's interview guest is Beck Smith, the Los Angeles-born former captain of New Zealand who now hosts the excellent podcast, The Players, with COPA90 and the BBC, in which she interviews the top players in women's soccer. We've had some great guests lately, including Melissa Reddy, Caleb Porter, and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Beck Smith. Our guest now is one of the more fascinating people in the soccer world. Beck Smith was born in Los Angeles to parents from New Zealand. She captained Duke University and the New Zealand national team, playing in two World Cups and two Olympics. She also spent four years at Wolfsburg, where she won the UEFA Champions League. After retiring from playing due to injuries, she spent five years as a women's soccer executive at FIFA and got into the media business, including as global executive director for the women's game at Copa 90. These days, she's based in London and hosting a terrific podcast called The Players with Copa 90 and the BBC, in which she interviews the top players in women's soccer. Bex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me, Grant, and for reading all that out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot going on there, which is very impressive, and, and and there's a lot that I want to talk about here, but I do want to start with your podcast, which I've been listening to and enjoying. Um, you've had a wide variety of players on the show already, including a fun recent interview with Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle from Manchester City and the U.S. Women's National Team. What were they like to interact with? They're fun. I mean, uh, Sam was a little bit late because not her fault. The coach wanted to talk to her. So she ended up coming around 45 minutes late. So she was like a bit stressed out. And she admitted that in the pod. She was like, I'm the organized one. I'm the one that's always on time. And mm -hmm. Rose, who's like, you know, super chill and a lot of like fun and just super easygoing. Um, we, we just hung out for like 45 minutes. So it was just really nice to chat to her. And I think honestly, probably the better pod was at 45 minutes with, with Rose before we even started recording, but they're lovely. They just have like such a nice friendship, don't they? I mean, you know, yeah. those guys as well. And it was just nice to see that I think. Um, and to be able to hang out with them was, was cool. And like I said, you have a, a wide variety of, of guests from different countries who've already come on the show. What is your goal with this podcast series? Yeah, it's a it's a good question because I think there's so many podcasts out there, namely this one as well, which is has some incredible guests, uh, I might add. Um, I think the goal for the Players Podcast um, is really to, it's more of a project, I'd say, in women's football, women's soccer, 
um, to try to give a platform to players to be able to talk about topics that maybe most, let's say, media outlets or traditional media outlets might not talk about um, or might not, you know, find that interesting. So topics like leadership with Jill, Jill Scott and Steph Horton, but really talking about it from the perspective of, um, you know, I've also been a captain on a team. I kind of understand what it's like to carry that armband. And some days it's just really hard. And so just having that conversation, um, but also being able to take topics that everyone can relate to, um, you know, like resilience. I mean, what we're going through right now with COVID and, and this global pandemic it's hard you know people struggle and so the topics that Nadia Nadim talks about where she's an Afghanistan refugee her dad was killed by the Taliban became a refugee in Denmark and now plays for one of the top clubs in the world like but that doesn't just happen because she's lucky or she's a good footballer it's because she has some incredible resilience and those are the topics I think that everyone can relate to and so hopefully it becomes a podcast that's really not about women's soccer not about women but really about topics that we can all relate to and they're they're just incredible human beings and role models and i personally think we need more of that uh right now out there um i i personally want to be able to look up to to people when i find you know you look around in different areas where you should find leaders and and you struggle sometimes so it's been really really fascinating and, and really sort of inspirational for me as well as a host one thing we were talking about before we started recording here is i'm sort of fascinated by the what I call the art of interviewing and <laughs> how, you know, sometimes you can get totally different responses to the same question and just depending on who's asking the question. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like you have this understanding with the players you interview that they, they seem comfortable with you. And I just get the feeling that they, uh, they know your background having yeah. been a player at a very high level and that helps with making these interviews really relatable and, and resonating. And, and I'm wondering what your experience has been like as an interviewer. And, and this is somewhat new for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very new for me. Um, I actually, it was kind of when we proposed the project, I proposed it with other players hosting it. So that wasn't, it wasn't the concept that I was going to be hosting it. Um, but the, one of the BBC guys turned around in the first, and actually in the first meeting, and he said, I think you should host it, um, which took a little bit of arm turning because I'm not as good, I don't think, um, putting myself out there or being the center of attention because I think the last years I've been really trying to raise profiles of players, um, push them into the spotlight. You know, my, my time was, has already been. Um, but I do find it really, really fun. And I guess, like you said, there's a, there's a trust there as well that you you know that as interviewing people that if they trust that you're really, you have their best interests at heart and that you're really trying to promote them and, and give them a platform, kind of open it up and say, look, we can curate these episodes with you if you want to. Um, I think that the players have a lot bigger buy-in to what we're trying to do and what and what they can use the platform for. So it becomes a project that is hopefully, ideally, and some of them have really taken to it, um, it becomes their own. And, and that makes it more fun, I think. And and they also know, like, you know, I say, I say stupid stuff all the time and it's fine. Like, it's really, you know, we're all... We're all in it sort of for the same reasons. And um, yeah, as long as I can sort of edit out my stuff and I tell them that they're, they're allowed to edit out their their stupid stuff as well, I think it starts from like a good, <laughs> an even playing field. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm wondering like in terms of favorite moments that you've had so far, just from the interviews that you've done, what are, what are a couple of those? Oh gosh. We just did one with Aaron Cuthbert and Rachel Corsi. Um, they're two Scottish internationals and I think for me that one like really hit a personal note because the whole topic um, that we discussed was about heartbreak because I don't, you maybe probably know that at, at being a soccer fan, but they didn't qualify for the women's Euros and they literally have some of the best players on the planet, I think. I mean, Aaron Cuthbert is incredible. You have Caroline Weir, you've got Kim Little. I mean, the, the names go on and on. And yet they didn't qualify for the women's Euros. And then in the World Cup, which you probably saw as well, they mm. just had so, right? They had yeah, so many terrible game. calls against them. They changed the VR, VAR rules because of their game, because it was like so terribly unfair. And unfortunately, they were the ones that had um, to have that sort of happen to them. And it just feels like they're this lovely sort of, I, I hate the word underdog, but sort of under dog <laughs> country um that has so many cool people and just like a lovely spirit to them but they just always seem to get sort of the short end of the stick and hearing Erin talk about it and how she was just like I hated football I absolutely hated football um I think you know we as players we can all relate to that I've hated football so many times and I've I've like seriously hated referees when I know that they're just trying to do their job and I've you know having worked at FIFA I saw it from the other side and I know how hard they work and how much of a lack of a support there is for them but I still as a player just absolutely loathed some of the referees I had because I was like this isn't fair and so I think you know talking to her it really it hit a nerve but every single episode has a completely different vibe. Um, every player brings such different sort of um, skill sets and stories. And, um, you know, Nadia Nadim's story is just like, it just blows my mind, that sort of stuff. You can't even imagine what that's like, you know, being in the Middle East and, and being in a war zone. Um, and, and to see her how she is, she's just like the most incredible, happy, motivated, genuinely free-spirited person I've ever met. And you're just knowing the, the background, it's just, it blows your mind, that sort of stuff. Um, but I could go on for days talking about all the episodes, so you can't have to stop me here, I think. That's the one thing I've learned. It's like, just shut up sometimes. That's like, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> so one of the big developments of 2020 soccer-wise for me has been being able to see women's club games from England and the rest of Europe on my TV a lot more here mm. in the U.S., you know, it is already becoming part of my my weekend regular viewing habits, and in, in part also because there's more U.S. players over in England now. Um, what are you seeing in the growth of the women's club game in Europe right now? It's blowing up, actually. When I was playing, um, you had the the women's league in England that existed, and it still had the big names. It had the Liverpools, it had the you know Fulhams, it had the Chelseas, it had the Arsenals. But now what you're seeing is a league like the FAWSL here in the UK leveraging the names of and the brands of the clubs that they are a part of to really push the media and marketing side. And I guess that's kind of why I went into media marketing or media and storytelling was it just felt like that was the one area that needed to grow the most. You had 
the quality of the sport was increasing. You know, you, I genuinely enjoyed watching a lot of the games, but I just didn't know enough about the players. I didn't know who they were. And you can't tell stories if you don't know who the characters are. So it still feels like you still had to start with who are these characters? You're in chapter one. You're in like the first half of chapter one, introducing characters still to some of the best players in the world um, playing on the international stage. So I think that's where um, leagues have become so much better is just with the media and the storytelling and using social media um, behind it because, you know, traditional broadcasts is sort of not included women's soccer in a lot of their coverage. Now they are more so. And you have, you know, the Atalanta medias of the world making sure that that's redistributed all over the planet, which is incredible. Like what an incredible, disruptive, innovative model that they've they've built as well. Um, But then you also have, you know, people like NWSL investing in people like Lindsay. um, What's her name? Lindsay Barron's who's incredible, the VP of business development now. I mean, she's come in and she's, you know, done a CBS and Twitch deal. Now you can see games all over the place. So I think you're right. The The visibility has blown up, but um, but also the storytelling is just much better and the quality is better. You know, you don't want to see like crap quality, really terribly produced pieces of content because then you automatically associate that the game is not as good when it, that's just not true anymore. Now the women's Euro will be played, it's moved to 2022, it's going to be in England. Uh, what kind of impact do you think it could have on the women's game there? I think England is catching up. You know, they're, they're so proud as a nation that they're a football nation and that, you know, football was born in England. And yet they're so far behind, I think, in the women's game globally. When you look at, you know, I, you mentioned I played in Germany, I played in Sweden. Um, in the US and all of those leagues and the national teams and just how they support women's soccer in those countries, I think is so much farther ahead than where England is. Although that has shifted massively, I think actually in this year has been one of the most exciting times in in the UK and in England, um, seeing the support that the FA has pushed into the women's side. Um, You know, I know Kelly Simmons really well, who runs a professionalization of women's soccer, or they call it football, obviously, um, at the FA. And just the amount of, you know, support that she gets at the FA, the types of sponsors, you get private equity firms like Bridgepoint looking, you know, to buy the league now. And now they're competing with the Premier League to try to own the WSL, the league. So I I think that, um, yeah, England has traditionally been behind, but they're, uh, they're definitely catching up. I don't even remember what your question was. Like, how wh- how can I be hosting a podcast when I can't remember? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, in terms of like having the Euro there in in twenty twenty two. Oh, Euro. Like, yes, I, yes, I do yes. remember you know going there to cover the twenty twelve Olympic <laughs> tournament, which you obviously played in, mm. um, and that seemed to be something of a, a of a a moment for the women's game in England. Yeah. And yeah, massively. And I, I would certainly hope that a tournament like the Euro, which unlike the Olympics, there's only one sport everyone's watching and everyone's focused yeah. on one thing, could, could really move things forward. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where I was going was that I think that all of this investment 
uh, and the push and the sponsors involvement and interest in the game and the broadcasters getting involved. It really is partly because there's a massive tournament that's coming, um, you know, world stage tournament coming in well now two years. Uh, so I definitely think that those big tournaments are catalysts for change. And, you know, I said that when I was working at FIFA, but had there not been a Women's World Cup, I wouldn't have become a professional footballer because I was, you know, captain of a national team that had a, a really sort of, you know, not as challenging a qualification um, as some of the other confederations. And it felt like, well, geez, if I'm going to be playing in a World Cup, then I need to go and play abroad and I need to sort of make this a profession. So I think those big tournaments are drivers for change and, and catalysts for investment and um, to take the game a lot more seriously, which is what England is 1000% doing. Now, you worked at FIFA overseeing women's soccer. The current FIFA president, Johnny Infantino, has announced big plans for the women's game, including expanding the Women's World Cup to 32 teams and a $1 billion FIFA investment in grassroots women's soccer around the world over a four-year period. Do you buy what Infantino is selling on the women's game right now? Do you believe in in FIFA backing this up? (laughs) That's a trick question, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Good question. Good interviewing tactics, Grant. Um, No, I think, you know, having worked there and seen the, the organization from inside out, you really get to see what goes on and how money is spent, how budgets are allocated. Um, the attitude towards, you know, the women's game versus the, the male tournaments and things. And I think, I think that they have the intention uh, to support women's, women's soccer. And I think that the signaling that FIFA does is extremely important. So just being, you know, coming out and saying that we're supporting it, that there's a billion in investment um, is important. And I think that that's part of their role as the global governing body of football. Um, do I think that they could be doing more? Absolutely. Do I think that, you know, I want to see a breakdown of where that budget goes versus all of where the budget goes globally in, in terms of, you know, supporting soccer and, and football? Um, do I think expansion of the Women's World Cup for the next edition is a good move? Probably not, no, because I don't think that there's enough teams that keep that tournament really competitive. And I think, you know, the expansion in 2015 into to 24 teams, that made sense because there were more teams that were knocking on the door and especially in the European confederation that can play at that level. But we also saw, you know, a lot of flack for the Thailand-USA game, um, you know, and the score lines like that. And that that doesn't help, I don't think, develop the game. What I think would develop the game a lot more is a, is a, is a Club World Cup. I don't understand mm-hmm. why on the men's side they're expanding that tournament and on the women's side they refuse to look. Well, I do know why. Um, and it, the answer is very simple. It's politics. But <laughs> um, but I think that that would drive the game, you know, a lot more. I think a, a futsal, women's futsal tournament. Why, why have we not launched that? I think in, in Asia, there's so many countries where, and also in Africa, where girls are not really allowed to play football outside, but they can play indoors. Um, and so that's why you see the Asian countries, um, the women's teams are really incredible and they're so they're incredible to watch um, the Iraq team, the Iran team. So um, I, I think that they can definitely be doing more. And I think a lot of it is lip service, um, if I'm really honest. But I still think the lip service is important. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments 
live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. This week, Spain has a full slate of midweek games, and you can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina on Fanatis, as well as the Copa Libertadores. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, Goal TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or going to fntz.co slash grant fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I wonder what about the challenge of global development of women's soccer. Like, on the one hand, you've got some countries where the game is at a very high level right now. Like, this last mm-hmm. Women's World Cup was so much fun to watch. Like, yeah. just for anyone who follows the sport um, or people who are coming new to the sport. Uh, but then you have other parts of the world where literally it's about access to the to playing the game and and yeah. there's a there's a big gap between the most developed women's soccer countries and those countries where there's literally not access to the game and i'm wondering how you think you know fifa and confederations and national federations should handle that it's a really really good question because the gap um, of variety or difference in the development of the women's game is so much bigger than it is on the men's side. Um, you have cultural and social barriers that just don't really exist on the men's side that are in most of South America, large parts of Africa, and you know probably half of Asia. Um, if I had to put a you know um, a, a, a guesstimate on it, so. And, and also some of the island countries all around the world as well. So I think those social and cultural barriers are very, very hard to break down with, um, you know, having a stock standard strategy to development of, of football. So unless you, you look at the social and cultural challenges and trying to break those down first in those countries, you're never going to get more investment in the sport. You're never going to get more girls playing the sport because there isn't the support. Um, and people, you know, unless they're rebels and unless everyone is like a Megan Rapino who's going to change the world, you know, they're not all going to want to play. So I think that those um, elements of, of football, you can't um, strip out of the development of the game. And that's, I think, why storytelling in media is so vital to the, the development of women's football. And I'll give you an example, because I was when I was working at FIFA, we did the under 17 Women's World Cup in Jordan. And that tournament in and of itself changed my life and probably the lives of so many young girls and boys and men and women in the Middle East because it was the first time that we saw girls wearing hijabs in an international tournament. It was the first time that in the Middle East they had a girls or women's tournament at all. 
Um, it was the first time that there was a major tournament that was being run mostly by women. So you had Prince Jordan, um, Prince Ali of, of Jordan supporting his team, like mostly full of women, um, but mixed, which is also, I think, important. Um, running that tournament and making incredible additions and changes to Stadia. It was the first time we saw accessibility. So through a women's tournament, they actually made really incredible um, facility changes and and uh, improvements in the country that then the men's game could use as well. So those types of stories, if no, if they just sort of happen in isolation, they, they matter, but they matter to a very small population. If you could tell an incredible story around that tournament, that changes perception within you know however long it takes to watch that documentary and i think that those those things those stories are so important to tell and that's kind of why i got you know very passive passionately into the media and storytelling um side not because i necessarily wanted to you know host a podcast <laughs> <laughs> i do i want to get into the beck smith story a little bit here so your parents are from New Zealand. You were born in Los Angeles. What were the circumstances of their being in LA? Um, it's a good question. My parents are kind of like full of adventure. They told us three weeks ago they're moving back to New Zealand. So there you go. <laughs> Another adventure. <laughs> um, they've been there for, I think, 45 years or something. But they literally, you know, in, in New Zealand, obviously, it's a small island. It's a little bit further away from everything else. And so everyone sort of does their OE, their overseas experience. And my parents were just very adventurous. My dad is an entrepreneur. Well, both of them are entrepreneurs. So he sort of got involved in um, the garment industry in, in LA quite early on through contacts that he had when they moved from New Zealand to London, which is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to live in London, because I always told these stories when we were kids of like how cool London was um, back in the whatever it was, 70s. Um, and uh, got a job in, in L.A., got into like fashion in the garment industry and then started his own company and they just ended up staying. And I mean, every time I get on the phone with them, they're like, well, it's a balmy 72 degrees here. What's the weather like in London? And I'm like, shut it. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the spirit of adventure, the entrepreneurial, you know, spirit of, of both my parents and you know, the weather isn't bad. And I think there's just, there's incredible opportunities in LA. It's a cool city. Um, I think a lot of people either love it or they hate it, but there's so many different parts to LA that um, every every part has its own sort of vibe and spirit. And I, I like the diversity there as well. Plus the surfing's good, so <laughs> I'm happy they stayed. So what was your experience like at Duke University and what did you study there? Duke University, oh, that was another interesting one. So Duke is still, you know, obviously, you know that te technically part of the South, um, and I I found it really hard because I, it just wasn't really my vibe. I studied economics and Spanish there. I loved loved the economics program there. We had incredible um, economists that were professors that were still doing research that were part of some of the biggest you know global think tanks on the planet. So in terms of what I learned there, it was incredible. Um, and the sports is like unreal at Duke. I mean, our Cameron crazies are crazy. And we won our basketball team won uh, the national championship when I was there. And our men's football team or soccer team was awesome. And we, we did well. And so the sports is just unparalleled. So you have that really cool academic and sports um, strength. And that, that was why I chose Duke. Um, and, and I'm happy I went because I, I never lived on the East Coast. I definitely didn't have any experience with the South. 
Um, and I think what it did was it opened my eyes to the fact that there was still a lot of racism, if I'm honest. Um, I was quite, kind of surprised that there was still you know segregation there it was it was like sort of the black kids were over there the athletes were over there um and I, I found that really strange um and it just it felt like it wasn't like as diverse and as inclusive and sort of as mixed as what I had grown up in um living in in LA so it was good it was good that I saw it um I really appreciated my time there um haven't been back that much even though I think North Carolina is gorgeous absolutely love it as a state um, but yeah, it was a, it was an interesting, eye-opening experience, I'd say, Grant. Interesting. Um, <laughs> so you speak four languages, I am told. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you pick all those up? And what are they? Spanish I learned in school and then continued in university. I just really liked it. I loved reading and writing in Spanish. You can, you can say so much more. It's a much more expressive language than English is. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and then uh, I learned, what did I learn next? German, when I went to Germany, because you have to. <laughs> yeah. um, you literally, like all the trainings were in German. And the first training, it, you know, the first time I landed there, there was like one person who spoke English. The girls didn't really speak to me that much. All the trainings were in um, German. And it wasn't really until I started learning German more fluently that I started making, you know, friends there. Um, Birgit Prince was there at the time. Renate Lingor was there at the time. They had both played in the U.S. League, so their English was good. And they were lovely. They were just really open. But the rest of the girls, they it was hard because I, I couldn't talk to them. They couldn't talk to me. So you basically sink or swim. And then I went to Sweden. And to pick up Sweden from German is actually really easy. So Swedish is not a hard language to learn, I don't think. Um, and that's just a, a really lovely singing-songy language. Um, which I still try to practice as much as possible. So yeah, those those are the languages. And did you ever consider playing for the United States or was it always going to be New Zealand? I did consider playing for the United States, but I was too much into too many things at a young age. I really liked school. Um, I really loved surfing and basketball and I played baseball with the boys up until I was like 13. Um, so I think I was just too, I played the guitar. I, I was too much into too many things to like really focus. And you know, like U.S. soccer is so competitive. Mm -hmm. I was in like the ODP camps and, you know, all the politics and the competitiveness. And I just wasn't really into that when I was like that age. Um, and then when I got asked to play for New Zealand, I was a senior in college. So I was, well, how old was I? 20 years old. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. <laughs> you know, I'm like, why not? And also it was my roots. It really felt like, oh, yeah, it felt like it just felt right to, to represent New Zealand. And um, I went on the first tour and I loved it. It was so laid back. Like one of the girls had a guitar. We were in a big van driving around Texas playing all these like university teams before the World Cup qualifiers in Australia as the warm up tour. Like, okay. go figure. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it was just fun. I don't know. I, I really liked it. And I think there were times where it was frustrating because it wasn't as professional as what I'd seen in college, you know. But um, then John Herdman came and really helped to professionalize the federation. Um, and they had, you know, lots of changes in coaches throughout the years. And, and I just, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of teams that you can make up your own haka uh, and have your own, you know, language and it was it was cool. There's a there's a lovely spirit, I think, to the New Zealand culture. So you were part of two World Cups, two Olympics. 
were there any particular moments that you experienced that stood out the most to you? I love London. You mentioned London Olympics. I mean, first of all, it was sunny for a month in London. Like, when does that ever happen? <laughs> and so all the Londoners were happy and, and smiling. And it was just, I don't know, it felt like um, there was a shift in... Um, in sports, you know, it felt like the stories coming out of that Olympics were the best stories I'd ever heard. Um, you know, I went and watched Usain Bolt run. Um, I went and watched um, Ennis, the the Brick GB runner as well, run. And I got to see some of the other sports and it just felt like, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. And probably because it was in an English-speaking country as well. Um, you know, I was in Beijing and, and 2007 World Cup in China as well. And um, it was it was harder to get around. It wasn't as fun to travel. You know, the food's different. The beds are hard. Uh, and then Germany was fun as well because that was sort of – I was living in Germany when we had the World Cup there. So that was cool because I got to see a lot of the preparation work go into that tournament. But London just felt like – it was probably the biggest, coolest event I have ever been to, participated in. But also as a fan, it was cool. You were there, right? You you went and watched some of that. It, it, it's sort of it's crazy to me now that I think about how many games I've covered over the years where you were playing, often against the U.S. Yeah, that unfortunately. It, it, <laughs> and, and you and I have only just met in person for the first time recently here. And yeah. But I was in Shenyang for like you yeah. know your team against uh, the U.S. in the Olympics and and oh I was... that was a terrible game. Let's not talk about that. Anymore, <laughs> <And> then, okay, <laughs> moving on. And then next uh, topic, no. <laughs> and then uh, I was there in 2012 when yeah uh, you know New Zealand played the quarterfinals. Yeah, um, yeah. You remember that penalty that she missed for New yeah. Zealand when it was one zero and it yes. was one one for New Zealand. Remember that one? I, I do remember that game. I, re- I remember. I remember Sydney Larue scoring in that game um, yeah, as well. Yeah, um, yeah. But that was a hard game. It was a hard game. It was a really hard game. And I think London was like really memorable for me too because I was carrying a really bad knee injury, and I I knew it was going to be probably my la- that. And actually, that was my last game with New Zealand was against mm-hmm. the U.S. and. Um, it was quarterfinals. It was the farthest we'd ever been in any tournament. Um, so it was like that bittersweet of you're you're like, well, I'm fine if we if we lose to U.S. and they go and win it, I'm actually t- kind of fine with that. Um, you're never fine losing, but and also because I then like put on my USA shirt and was traveling with the USA friends and family and like <laughs> partying with them when they won. I was at the gold medal celebration with Shannon Box, who's a friend of mine, which was cool. Um, but yeah, it was. I also knew that it was going to be my last sort of international matches and my last sort of big games, and um, so I think I appreciated it a lot more as well. I assume it was very difficult to have to retire, especially due to injuries. And I'm wondering what that time was like for you, in a sense, and and the transition then into working for FIFA. Like, was that something that you always wanted to do? How did that come about? Yeah. I mean, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. It was shit. It was absolute shit being injured at the end of your career, at my career. Um, It was painful physically. It was painful emotionally. And mentally, it was like probably one of the lowest places I've been in. Um, Because you... 
I kind of felt that I didn't really have the support either of my team, my teammates, my coach. When I came back from the Olympics, he kind of just turned his back on me and was like, well, you went to the Olympics, you're injured now, like you have to deal with the consequences. So um, yeah, it felt it felt hard. And looking back, I'm glad that I had the support team that I did. I found an incredible doctor and I kind of just worked my way out of it. And I'm proud of myself for being able to have done that as well. So, you know, for every low moment um, in your life, there's always that flip side of, well, I got out of it and it made me a lot stronger and a lot more resilient. So I'm really glad I went through that, but it was hard. It was really hard. Um, you know, you lose your identity partly as well as an, as an athlete. You're kind of like, well, who am I now? And even though I had, you know, a couple of degrees and had worked always because I, you know, get bored if I only play, I still felt like I didn't really know what my purpose in life was after that. And then picking up with, with FIFA, I happened to, it happened to be great timing. Um, I'd met Tatiana Henny, who was running the competitions at that time, when they were doing all the, the um, checks for Germany for the 2011 World Cup. So we had met and we had kept in touch. And she was like, I'm really looking for an ex-player that has a business background to sort of help come in and, and run some things. And so the timing was really good too. And yeah, I guess... It's that saying, isn't it? What do, what do they say? It's um, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And it felt like I had sort of prepared for that moment. I'd gotten, you know, a couple of degrees and made sure that I worked my ass off during my football career so that I wouldn't, you know, not be, that I wouldn't be stuck um, not being able to have any choices. Um, but yeah, FIFA was a, a fun transition. It was very eye-opening as well. Got to see sort of, yeah how is football run? <laughs> and it's, let me tell you, it's a shit show <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I feel like I should follow up at that point then. Like, like what, what was your, what, what did you see? It was, it was just, you know, it was disappointing to have been, you know, growing up in the U S playing in Sweden, all those countries where you felt like people were really pushing and trying to grow women's football and then see sort of the attitude um, within uh, FIFA that it was kind of, you know, you, you guys are fine over there in your little bubble, but when it really comes to like the big stuff, it's only, you know, the big boys are going to go in this room and we're going to talk about the big boy stuff and like you girlies can go over there and you can, and that, that was the attitude, that was the feeling at least. Um, and I say for the most part, because there were some incredible, like Prince Ali of Jordan is probably one of the most inspirational, cool people I've ever met. And he is like all about, you know, inclusivity and football and trying to, I think, do the right things with football. Um, but yeah, I saw a lot of like what money and power can do. Um, you know, a lot of people more interested in the VIP tickets and what is being served in, in the hospitality boxes than what's going on on the pitch. And those are the people that are supposed to be caring about what goes on on the pitch and what goes on around the pitch and what the fans experience is. So just, just I think the focus of what what football can really do. I really believe in the power of football, like for, for cultural change, for social change. And I think we need that. We need like things to be able to push conversations forward. And I think football is a great vehicle for that, whether it's women or Black Lives Matter or gay people or whatever it is. Um, football is a, is a tool that we can use and to see it not being used or being seen like that um, and being used for other things, I think was disappointing, if I'm honest. You know, I've had this a discussion with people over the years about 
you know, friends of mine who, who follow women's soccer closely, who they are convinced that for women's soccer to reach its full potential, it needs to be separate from FIFA. Like, how, where do you fall on that? Do you, are, do you think, and, and what do you think will happen? Like, do you think FIFA can, can help women's soccer reach its full potential? Yeah, I think there's always potential. I mean, they, you know, they're one of the biggest global brands on the planet and they have more money than most, you know, the GDP of most countries. So, of course, I think that there's potential that they can do it. Um, I just think that it's all about, um, you know, the decision makers that are involved in what happens with sport. And I think you have to have the right people making those decisions for the sport. And it has to be an inclusive group as well. Um, and I don't, do I think they have it right? Probably not. Um, but that's also for the men's game as well. So I think, yeah, there's definitely potential, but what I've seen sort of coming out of that role and what's been so inspiring and cool is that there's so many amazing things happening in football and soccer all around the world, driven by people who are extremely intelligent, you know, have incredible investment behind them, who are innovative um, and have, you know, the, the best interests of the sport uh, at its heart. And I think that's been where I've decided to put more of my energy in the last years. And I think I get a lot more back um, from that. And, and it's been really, yeah, it's been a lot more fun, I'd say, and a lot more inspiring um, being outside of the governance side of it. We're winding down here with Beck Smith. <laughs> uh, you do have a Women's World Cup coming to New Zealand. Uh, yes. As a co-host in 2023 with Australia. What's that going to be like? Can you can you help prepare us for for going to to New Zealand and Australia for this? Yeah, it's going to be a big big party, Grant. So you better <laughs> be ready. Um, no, it's going to be cool. It's the first time too that it's um, co-hosted by two different countries, so that is interesting. So logistically, there's obviously a lot that they would have to go through um, to plan for that. I know you know having manage the world cups just in one country and quite small country like france um even canada you know being the coast to coast the moncton to vancouver that was challenge that was a challenge in and of itself with the different time zones but so they'll have a similar i think logistical um challenges or things that they'll have to deal with in terms of you know flights back and forth and how that would work with um australia and new zealand but it's going to be cool i think the both the australians and the new zealanders are have such a like you know, sports is such an ingrained part of our culture that the whole country gets behind it. And I know Jacinda Ardern, when the under 20 women girls team from New Zealand did so well in, I want to say Uruguay, was it under 17? Uh, I should know that actually. They, um, they did so well and she got behind them as the prime minister. And it was just, it was cool. It's cool to see the, the whole country behind um, the athletes. So I don't doubt for a second that both Australia and New Zealand will be like massively supporting the tournament and the players. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be a big, big party more than anything. I mean, we're going to go down there and make sure it is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Beck Smith is the host of the Players Podcast, interviewing top women's soccer players from around the world. You should definitely check it out. She's done a million other things too, as we've discussed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And all the best with your podcast as well and your fantastic guests. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Beck Smith as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.